it's all about relationships. And to me, I think once there's a friendly relationship, it's very hard for that person to not want to do the best for you. Your advertising team is key to growing your law firm. So creating trust with them is critical. The more there's an intimate relationship with the advertiser and the more it feels like a partnership and not just like a customer, they're more inclined to try to help you or make sure that you do right. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive access to growth strategies for your firm. As managing partner of the personal injury law firm, Anajar and Levine, Mark Anajar understands the art of consumer engagement. Mark and I sat down to discuss the key components of strategic company expansion, the significance of market saturation, as well as the importance of brand association when appealing to consumer demands. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. An important first step for any lawyer is to really understand the people around them. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Mark Anajar, managing partner at Anajar and Levine Personal Injury Lawyers. I never wanted to be a lawyer. I actually wanted to be a chef. You know, I always enjoyed cooking and I wanted to cook. And that was kind of what my passion was. And my father was like, listen, that doesn't really pay well. And on top of that, you're like working every single holiday. But he made a deal. He's like, listen, if you want to be a chef, go, go to law school, get your law degree because I had already applied to law school and got in. And he's like, if you still don't want to do it after you graduate, then I'll help you open up a restaurant. I'm like, so I, to me, it was an opportunity to try to get to where I would want to go to. But, you know, I've always been a person who took charge, you know, whenever there was like organizing, you know, either parties in college or, you know, getting our friends on vacations or doing that. I was the guy that was always in charge of everyone collating all the money, getting everyone to sign up. So I've always been a problem solver. And I think that kind of, I didn't realize how well that played into what we do for a living that I think as a lawyer, all you're doing is taking other people's problems, internalizing them and finding a solution for them. So I think that's kind of what kind of migrated me into the law. So I go to law school, I graduate, I get my first job at Terry Rosenblum's office and I just hit the ground running. And the, the management side of things that I picked up on is my father was a businessman, like an entrepreneur by trade. He owned uh, jewelry stores when he was younger. Uh, then he owned a chain of sporting goods stores at some times. So there was a lot of times in his life where he tried different businesses. And I remember in the 80s, he had a chain of sporting goods stores in downtown Miami. And I had to go to every single store and batch out the credit cards, count all the cash and do the profit and loss for every store. Wow. And I'm upstairs in his office and I'm doing the profit and loss. And one of the profit and losses was we lost money that day. So I'm like, what do you mean you lose money that day? And he's like, well, there's no guarantee that you make money that, that you have to average out the month. So I think that was one of the life lessons that I took from, you know, learning how to be a, a business operator in comparison to just being an attorney. So I think when you took those two modalities of being very structured and, and, and by the numbers and being a business operator and then combine that with, you know, some problem solving skills, you know, the rest has been history. So we say, right. Yeah, that's fantastic. So there's, there's school that you go to attend and then there's school at home and like what you're actually learning doing. The other thing is I, you know, I talk to a lot of attorneys and they struggle with the business aspect. So they get in the, Hey, I can practice the law. I understand the law. I'm a technician, but, but you got that, that management side early on. 
So my dad had good times and bad times. You know, my brother and my sister grew up when times were good. You know, I grew up when times were bad and I had to take out student loans. So I saw what it was when, you know, my parents struggled and had to succeed and work twice as hard, even at an older age. Um, even in people that I've interacted with along the way in business, you always see people who were successful at one point and didn't have success. So I think that taught me that you always have to be diligent and be prepared for the worst. I think that's something that I've always looked. I'm like, whenever I'm talking to somebody, I'm like, okay, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? I always want to know the extremes. And once I know the extremes, then I can formulate a plan on what's the best thing to do. So I think, like you said, you go to law school, you get trained how to the language of law, right? You know, the legalese on how to speak and write like a lawyer. But at the end of the day, it's the practical skills of applying them through your daily interactions and doing what you do. And that's kind of what makes you who you are. So I agree that it's like the law school gives you the degree and the license to practice. But at the end of the day, it's the on the job training that teaches you how to really be successful as a lawyer and as well as a manager. Yeah, that's a great breakdown. So when you work for this firm, you know, when, when was it you decided, hey, I'm going to hang my shingle? You know, tell me about how you met your partner, uh, Glenn Levine. You know, when did you guys decide it was time to go out on your own? So I always had like the gift of gab. I think my first month of being an attorney, I went to a, a like a, a function where there was doctors and lawyers interacting with each other. So I meet this one doctor, me and him hit it off. And the next day he calls me and he's like, hey, I have no business referring you this case, but you seem like a nice guy. And he sends me this file. And it happened to be a case where a guy lost a leg, right? And we literally settled that case for $3.2 million. So that was that was our first my first big hit. And from day one, I was always an advertiser. I'm like, listen, I'm, I want to throw my cap in the advertising sphere. And back then, I'm not, I'm not going to date myself, but it was the yellow pages and the yellow books. So that was before the Apple iPhone. BlackBerry was still around. And at that point, my 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 boss at the time was like, listen, I don't advertise. It's not my thing. It's all like he was more of like a conventional style attorney. But he said, if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. So I took my first check and I bought the front cover of the yellow pages and I just snowballed from there. And I think within 18 months, I'm sitting there and I had like 119 of my own cases. And I'm like, all right, this it's time to go. So that was really a short transition of me working for someone to then transitioning to my own office. And, you know, we, we kind of laugh about now the yellow pages, but back then everyone used yellow pages and that was everyone had that phone book. Well, it's funny. The other day, like I was trying to find someone's phone number and I'm like, I should dial 411 to see if it even exists. But we had to do a background search and we got the number a different way. Uh, yeah, look, the, the the mediums that we used from the past to where we are today. Yeah, it's definitely got a lot a much more simpler. But yeah, the yellow books was very effective. And the way they did them was they staggered every city. So every city would drop at a different time. And every time the book would drop, let's say in Pompano in Florida or in Delray or in Boca, you would see a, a natural bump in terms of cases that were coming in every time those books dropped. So what you did was you bought all the books and staggered them over the year. And that way you were always busy. So that was just the business model. Absolutely. And that's very smart. And I, I've even heard of individuals like comboing that with like magnets. So then you're on you're that, that existing artifact in an individual's house and it's super smart. You know, let's talk about, and then we'll get back to marketing a little bit, but let's let's talk about your role, like this this progression in your role. You know, how has your role evolved, like at the very beginning where you're wearing a, a bunch of hats, you know, maybe trying cases and litigating yourself to more like the owner, the CEO 
Uh, tell me about that progression. It's 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 like a weird claim to fame, but I've actually never taken a deposition or gone to court. So really, the I've always been an office you know manager, and I've been the managing partner of the firm in the sense that there always had to be someone at home to answer the client's complaints or deal with the problems to make sure that they got resolved. So when me and my partner, Glenn, partnered up, we met in a Dolphins game, young guy about my age, we hit it off. He was a litigator. That was his expertise. What I brought to the table was I knew how to manage a file like the right way. And I, we, the way we divided the, the office structure in the beginning was you run the pre-suit department and pre-suit means anything before litigation from initial signup of the client facilitating getting them to the doctors, walking them through the insurance process of opening up all the claims, and ultimately, hopefully, to settlement, that would be the pre-suit phase of the case. If a case was impassed at that time and needed to go to litigation, then it would transfer over to his department. So that was really the division of labor that we structured in our office that was very good because we never really stepped on each other's toes. And as we just got busier, you know, in the beginning, I used to do my own secretarial work, you know, and then as the advertising happened, then you start hiring staff and then you have to say, all right, what do we do to make sure the staff is doing what they're supposed to do? So my old boss basically used to tell me you have to live and die by your markups, right? When he had an old system where there was post-its everywhere, you know, obviously now we have outlook and to do's and follow-ups and, and all the checklists that we need to do. So I think if you're going to be good at anything, you got to be organized. You have to have a system in terms of how you break apart your day. So first thing in the morning, I come in, knock out my emails, texts, do everything I need to do. Midday, I review all my files and do all my med charts. By, by afternoon, you know, if there's any cases that need to be settled, if they need assistance in bills and balances. And lastly, end of the day before I leave, make sure every call gets returned. So I think by structuring your day in a way where every day you were handling a, a different portion of the office, that's what allowed us to make sure that everyone was getting the same level of service, right? You don't want one guy to get an amazing experience with Anna John Levine. And then all of a sudden another guy never get a phone call back, never get returned mail. And then he's feeling that he's being left on the side. So you want to make sure that whatever you do, you do it consistently. There's so many takeaways there. I was thinking of Dan Sullivan, you know, who not how. So you have your who's that, that if you want to go fast, you find your who's. If you want to go linear and slow, you find, you, you think about how. And the other thing I was thinking about, and I wasn't going to take it this direction, but a lot of what you just said reminds, there's this book I, uh, by Sean Whalen. It's called, I think it's called Make Shit Happen. And he talks about the four pillars of success. He talks about power, which is like health, it talks about passion and relationships. It talks about mind and purpose, I believe is the last one. But we were kind of joking about this before. You've got the Peloton right behind you. So, so you've got your systems for work. Right. And we know how important a healthy body and mind are, you know, like it sounds like you have a consistent habits for all these areas of life. Yeah, look, I've my office staff actually prefers when I work out, you know, because they say that I'm a lot more chill the rest of the day. I think whenever you're dealing with a lot of stress, a lot of issues, a lot of things that you're responsible for. Human nature is that we get more tense, more anxious, and that stress of having to deal with multiple things at the same time, you know, can wear on you. And all of a sudden, your interactions with others become a lot more short or court, right? So by waking up in the morning and doing that workout, you know, knocking it out, sweating it out, getting the stress and the anxiety off your body, I think aside from taking care of your health, it also takes care of the mind in that way, where now all of a sudden you're just a little bit more chill when you're dealing with your staff, you're a little bit more relaxed, and it kind of helps with those interactions for sure.
An organization requires clear communication to run smoothly, but there can't be a one-size-fits-all policy. I asked Mark to elaborate on how he approaches communication with staff members and the impact it has on company workflow. As they become staff, like initially you want to be fair with everyone. Open door policy. If they have a question, I want them to have access. I want to be able to answer that question. But I think as they've been with you longer and they know what you they need to do and they already know the Anna Jar and Levine way, you have to have a certain level of trust in that individual. So I may be a little bit more lenient in terms of you know, where are they? What's going on? I know they're doing their job. I know they're handling their work. Their clients are happy. They're completing their tasks on time. They're going to get a little bit more free reign. Now, if it's someone who's new, you know, now, like I said, it's back to the original comment that we started the podcast with, which is making sure we maintain the consistency of care that we're providing our clients. Well, if I have a new employee until I know that I've they've graduated and they're doing things the way I want them done, yeah, I'm going to be a little bit more strict with them. I'm going to be a little bit more regimented with how they perform their job. And we have what's called like a memo sheet. And a memo sheet is just like a like a cheat sheet of all the things that I want to see on a case. Date of accident, property damage, insurance, where is their treatment, MRIs, all the things that I need to make a proper assessment of the case. And you're not allowed to walk into my office if you don't have this sheet on top of your file. Like it's it's a rule. But then as they graduate and as they already know their their the file, maybe someone who's been here for three, four years consistently demonstrated that they know what they're doing. In that situation, they'll come and just have a conversation with me. They're not gonna go through the ritualistic you know, thing of performing this sheet before they walk in my office. Sounds like a lot of the characteristics of like that checklist manifesto or before you take, you know, before you're flying a plane, you do the run up and go through all of these steps. And that's, that's super smart. That makes sense because then you can just empower those individuals that know what they're doing and you don't have to, to stress about the, the, well, to some degree, I hear micromanagement as like a negative, but I think in the beginning, I absolutely agree with you. Like, like making sure they do it your way. I think it takes the stress off of them because now they already know what you're looking for. So I think if you're always clear in, in what your requests are, if you always know are concise in terms of, hey, this is what I'm looking for. And now there's no surprise when they walk into the room to ask you a question of what your expectations are. I think that can add some brevity in terms of making it more easy for them to you know, get into the fold and figure things out. Jumping over to kind of the marketing, because you're one of the firms that just truly market themselves in a, in a fantastic manner for multiple channels, that omni-channel approach. And, and we had Gary Sarner on previously, and, and we were talking about radio, and you guys have had awesome success with radio. You know, in that medium, not saying to give away your secret sauce, but, you know, why has that been a medium that you've really focused and, and done well with? So I always tell everyone, they always say, you know, I don't, I don't mind sharing the secret sauce because it, there's another discipline that comes with that. And that's making sure you're answering the phone, right? Because if you're spending all this money on advertising and your intake team isn't picking up the phone, making sure they're screening them properly and making sure you're getting proper conversions, you're, you're burning your money. Um, look, I, you hit it on the head initially where you said it's all about relationships. And I think one of the things that we did very differently in the beginning was we didn't do we didn't work with ad agencies. I would meet all the general managers and the the, part, the, uh, the sales managers and the DOSs myself, and then we would go out and have drinks together or have dinner together. 
And to me, I think once there's a friendly relationship, it's very hard for that person to not want to do the best for you, right? So regardless of what the contract says and what you have on paper, you know, those are the terms that you're paying for. Those are the terms that you're agreeing to. But there's always added value that could be done by, you know, any of these advertisers. And I think the more there's an intimate relationship with the advertiser and the more it feels like a partnership and not just like a customer, they're more inclined to try to help you or make sure that you do right. And that happened more so in COVID than any other time in my life, because we have a very, very expensive advertising campaign and COVID came and every single one of our partners stepped up to the plate, kind of helped us get through that time maintained a lot of our assets and now we came out of it even stronger and that wouldn't have happened if you were just you know hands off in terms of your interactions with these people so yeah look it's it's worked very very well you know i think when you look at advertising i i, I try to say to make, keep it simple it's like a seven layer cake right there's no you can't have a seven layer cake unless you have all seven layers right so initially you start off with you know radio you start off with maybe things that are more cost effective maybe some internet Google's type advertising. Maybe then you move on to TV as you graduate. Then maybe you try additional markets. Maybe at that point, if you really feel comfortable, you can do some corporate sponsorships of some like venues and that's more of a branding component. So you don't wanna be hopping around with your budgets going from you know this channel to this channel and going here for three months and here for three months. You wanna have some type of consistency with either the viewers or listeners on that specific station or that specific medium where every year, year in, year out, you become a fabric of that station, fabric of that radio station or a fabric of that corporate sponsorship. So the longer you're there, the more that investment is gonna yield a better result. Building relationships is the key to company growth. I wanted to find out just how Mark leverages these relationships when expanding into other markets. As you grow, those are the relationships that are going to assist you to going into other markets because those other markets are usually owned by the same company. So whether it be Cox, iHeart, you know, Odyssey, whatever, or, you know, Fox or, you know, Hubbard, you know, these are all major clusters that have multiple stations throughout the state. So the more you have solid relationships, as you decide to expand your practice and move into these other markets, those are going to be the guys that grease your wheels and make it so much easier for you to do so. So look, the relationships are important. You know, you talked about the holy trinity that I like to call it, which is radio, television, and Google. I think if you don't have those three things working in concert, your ad campaign is not going to be as effective as it could be. The most expensive of those three is basically the television. So I always start off with the radio, maybe interact, interlace some of that Google advertising immediately, and then you add the TV. And then the, the Google advertising is the portion that really doesn't have a cap. You could spend in perpetuity on that. It's just a matter of what's your attrition rate and what what gets that point where it becomes a little bit too painful or you're not able to sustain it for the long term. Right. And and the other thing that you mentioned too, when you have these relationships and I like to think of COVID as like a big opportunity, right? And, and not in a, obviously it, it, it was very detrimental to many people, but those individuals that didn't throttle back, I mean, what other time in the last 10 years were, did your competitors just decide to throttle back or stop, right? And if you kept your foot on the pedal, that's where you gain a lot of market share and it creates that gap that's harder to compete against, particularly in search engine optimization like content marketing. Yeah. Look, so my like that story where I told you about my dad and the profit and loss, one of the key things that we do at Energy on Levine is I don't have any debt. You know, all my advertising is bought cash up front. 
So when COVID hit, we were in a very good financial position to weather that storm. So aside for the fact that our partners came to the table and, and helped us, the, what you said is very true. A lot of our other competitors were cutting, slashing their budgets, cutting out, releasing assets that we thought would never become available. And because we were in a better position, we were able to pick up a lot of those things. So there was a double-edged sword there because you're investing while your income is going down, right? And now you have to carry that load long enough for you to come out of COVID and reap the reward of that investment. But that's the difference between sometimes a short-term strategy and a long-term strategy. You got to always plan for the long game, be respectful of the short game, right? What are your short-term capital needs? And then how much are you always putting aside toward long-term growth? So we always have a savings account. And every time we get an unexpected windfall of like a large settlement or something that, you know, was out of the norm that took place, there's always a certain percentage that gets earmarked and allocated to our savings account because that puts us in a position for when an opportunity comes, we're ready to roll. I really like the idea of that savings account. And one idea I just had kind of on the side is when you get those big windfalls and people, a lot of times people don't want to set on cash, but, and they'll try to invest in a stocks or whatever accounts. But if you invest in your marketing, a lot of times you'll get a better return in your marketing up front. You might get a 10, 20% discount just doing that all entirely up front versus trying to get that same return on st the stock market. So if you're if you're a doctor or if you're you know accountant, someone who's more on a fixed income, you know you need to basically put your money to work for you. So you invest in the stock market because you're hoping to get better returns than you would get in a conventional bank account, right? Um, I think as a personal injury attorney, we're a rare breed in the sense that our own industry is our stock market. So the more money I put in advertising, the more my X could be five X, six X, seven X on my investment. And in that sphere, I'm in complete control. I'm not relying on shareholders. I'm not relying on an earnings report. I'm not relying on anybody to make decisions for me. We're in complete control of our own investments. So it's kind of ironic that when it comes to my personal investments, which are, you know, they're all life and whole life insurance, you know, real estate holdings, like just very conservative stuff because I can't be gambling on both sides of my life. I need to be, I need something that's the base, something that's the conservative play, something that lets me sleep at night and feel comfortable. And that fact that I'm, I feel financially stable when money comes into the business, I, I, I'm twice as aggressive as I would have otherwise been because I don't have the obligation of financial payments or, or monthlies that are choking me, so to speak. And you, I guess you can objectively look at those decisions a little bit differently than, than having to like, like force to look at it on a smaller basis. Like, you know, we're everything's done because of a want, not because of a need. You know, so I don't need to do anything. I can do it because I choose to do it. Super smart. And and on the on the growth side, okay. So your your firm's expanded. You've got multiple offices, and let's talk about that aspect because that's one that a lot of our listeners, you know, maybe they're doing pretty well in their market and they're kind of doing well in their home base. You know, what's the strategies to then, you know, is it to just pick another city, pick a, you know, expand outwardly near your location? Yeah, what what goes into some of those strategies and for expansion? So I think there's a, there's a there's a market saturation point where you're spending so much money in one area that there's only so much low lying fruit that you can pick, right? So if you try to get a hundred percent of the fruit off the tree, you got to get a ladder up there to pick off the top versus taking what's at arm's length on the bottom and getting the seventy percent that you can easily obtain 
without the additional fight. Um, it also it, it depends on the type of cases that you're going after, which is also important. But I would just basically say you got to have a strong market penetration where you feel year over year is this market continuing to grow. If the market's continuing to grow exponentially and you're happy with that growth, keep doing what you're doing. When you start to see that flat line or that trail off of, hey, I'm spending X, Y, Z more, but I'm not getting that exponential return that I was getting before, that might be the time when you say, okay, I think we hit saturation point. We need to consider maybe either expanding into another market or trying a different area of law, which we've done in our firm as well. So we branched off into workman's comp. We branched off into you know something in Florida that's called PIP litigation. We do a property, first party property claims, which has to do with hurricane claims and all those other areas. So I looked at those similar from my my father who had all these different stores that were all these different profit generators. I'm like, every single area of law could be another profit generator for me. Where comp could be its standalone, property could be its standalone, PIP could be its standalone. And then you have the, 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 the main firm, which is Anna John Levine. And then within Anna John Levine in itself, by going into other markets and expanding, you know, that's a two to three year investment. You know, we learned a lesson when we went to Jacksonville, you know, I had, I thought I had the secret sauce on how to make it work. And I went in there really, really hot and heavy. I went through community events and giveaways and TV and radio. And we, we learned our lesson quickly in three, four months, we burned through a lot of cash. And then I'm like, all right, well, we need to do this a little differently because we have to be in here for the long game. And that's when we dialed some stuff back and made some changes and then all of a sudden you saw that market change. And I would also say having market information was important. Like we were also struggling in Jacksonville, which was our, our first opportunity to go to another city. And we were pushing our branded 800 number, 800-747-FREE, 800-747-3733. And it wasn't working. And when we got up there, we realized Jacksonville was more like South Georgia small town than it was like South Florida. And they all wanted a local attorney. So we made the change to a local 904 number. And then once we made that change, you saw a dramatic increase. And it was kind of funny because two years later, after making that change, they, one of the stations did a focus group for us. And we appeared more local than guys that were there for multiple years. So just by making small changes of making it appear local, even taking our commercials and putting imagery of the city behind the commercials, we had them all we, we cut new commercials across the state and each state had imagery for Tampa behind it or Orlando behind it, or, you know, a bridge from Jacksonville behind it. And that brand association, that local awareness helped us in terms of penetrating into those markets. That's super smart. It makes me think of that. No, like trust. So instantly you're just hitting the trust. Oh, they're, they're, they're just like me. I live here. And, and you want to go the route of, you know, a lot of commercials are always about like, you know, big bags of cash and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe that appeals to some segments, but I think long-term that that most likely will turn most people off. I think it's gotta be about, you know, like a public service announcement, you know, did you know this, or are you aware, this is what we can do to assist you. This is how we can get you out of your problems. You know, our, our main tagline is take back control, you know, take back control of your life. You've been turned upside down. This accident has changed you. You're not able to get to work. You're in pain. We want to help you take back control and get back to being who you were before this accident. So I think that empowerment message is also very strong. I think it resonates better. So thinking about your messaging is also very important. There's a lot of different facets of an ad campaign that makes it effective. You want to control your messaging. You want to make sure you stay positive. Sometimes you have to appear local. 
And then second of all, you know, you have to do good and make it make the community. The community outreach is the last piece of the puzzle that helps kind of close that down. Yeah. And, and on the messaging first. So I, I read a story when I was doing my research that that you had a uh, situation where like you tried to use humor in a, in early on in radio advertising and maybe it wasn't the best. And then you had you kind of learn these different um, strategies that work for your firm. So, you know, why? I, you know, for me, from an outside consumer, I see, you know, the legal eagle guy like busting through and you got the bald eagle sound or that guy, uh, Jamie, I can't remember something that was the Super Bowl commercial where you had the big sledgehammer. So look, like there, there, there's, a, there's a saying that no publicity is bad publicity. So sometimes as long as they're talking about you, that's just as important. And I'm not saying sometimes putting a little humor into something that isn't a good, you know, catch to get people to remember your name. But in that instance that you were describing, we were on this Spanish radio station and there's like a Spanish show called El Gordo y la Flaca, like the fat guy and the skinny girl. That's like the name of the show. And it's on Univision and it's a very popular show in the Spanish market in Miami. So I made this caricature because back then I used to weigh a little bit more and it was like a chubby caricature. And I'm like, yeah, my Gordo, call the fat guy if you if you have an accent problem. Right. And, you know, I thought it was cheeky. I thought it was funny. I thought it would work. But then, you know, people who are sitting there with their family laid up in the hospital with a broken leg or God forbid, a broken back, don't really want to call the fat guy. They want to call a serious lawyer. So I think that was a lesson that I learned early on. And I think I was 25 or 26 years old when we tried that. But look, there's definitely going to be trial and error. And just kind of like what I told you, like my, like with my father and like, and there, there was never people that only did well in business. There's always hard times, whether it's going to be a COVID coming in and kicking you. And, and making you readjust everything or whether, you know, employees of yours leave and try to do damage to your firm on the way out. You know, there's always going to be some type of resiliency that you're going to run into and how you take, how you learn from that, what you take away from that and the changes that you make in order to get better are just as important. So, you know, I think even in, a, in an advertising campaign, you're going to make mistakes along the way, but sometimes it, I'd rather make eight decisions and two mistakes than make no decisions at all. Just continuing to move the ball forward. That reminds me of that that entrepreneur versus entrepreneur. You know, those entrepreneurs have a ton of ideas, but the entrepreneur just goes and executes and yeah. that continuous improvement. Mark, this is this has been fantastic. Uh, you know, and, and one final question. You know, where where can people go to learn more about you and your firm? Look, I mean, our website is a key place to go. Anajar and Levine.com. I know Anajar is not the easiest spelling in the world, so uh, hopefully you'll put it up there and they'll be able to see it. But Absolutely. it's you know, calling our office, you know, one of the things that we pride in our firm is that every single new call is answered by an attorney. We don't use an intake team. I don't use a call center. Every single one of our attorneys has a yellow pad on their desk and it has to be screened by a lawyer and signed off by an attorney. And then that way we know that every legal issue is being seen. Um, we had a situation where another law firm, you know, withdrew on a case because they just saw that it was a small insurance policy. But they didn't recognize that the guy was taken to the hospital, the hospital committed malpractice, and we wound up setting that case for seven figures. So if it wasn't for an attorney screening that call and really looking at all the legal issues rather than just the one in front of their face, we someone would have missed that. And actually another law firm did. So I think those are the things that we always bring to the table, you know, coming to our website, calling us whenever you have a problem. And, you know, we're always here to answer questions, whatever they are. I'd 
like to thank Mark Anajar from Anajar and Levine for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. Oh,